You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Let's pray and ask the Lord to continue to bless our time uh, in our worship tonight. Lord, thank you for this evening. We thank you that Lakeview has the opportunity to gather two times on Sunday to worship uh, the living Christ corporately. We see it as a vital means of grace. We also see it as a gift. And we are grateful for this gift. May we be found faithful to steward our time tonight. May I be found faithful in the preaching of the word and may God's people be faithful in the hearing and the doing of God's word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the late, great theologian John Gershner who was R.C. Sproul's great mentor, great influence on R.C. Sproul, if you have been blessed by R.C. Sproul. If you listen to John Gershner, he sounds a lot like him. But he once was asked to speak at a, at a business luncheon on the doctrine of justification by faith. And there was a reporter from a local newspaper there and, and so Gershner, he preached faithfully, he preached as clearly and fervently and persuasively as he could possibly preach on the doctrine of justification by faith. To his dismay, the following day in the newspaper, the newspaper reporter had written that Gershner had preached on just a vacation by faith. Well, this... Uh, is humorous in one sense, but very unfortunate in another sense because the doctrine of justification by faith answers the most important dilemma that we as sinners have. That is, how can a sinner be accepted by a God who is infinite in his holiness and his righteousness? Indeed, that is the dilemma of dilemmas. The question of the Bible is not how a loving God could allow people to go to hell. That's not the burden or the question of the Bible. The question of the Bible is how a holy God could allow sinners into his holy heaven. That is the question. And that is the question that justification by faith answers. Mike Horton, I believe, is correct when he says, our real crisis is the righteousness of God. That's our crisis. Why is that? Because the righteousness of God requires perfect righteousness, and it requires unrighteousness to be penalized. And so he says, our real crisis is the righteousness of God. But as our text is going to teach us tonight, the solution is the righteousness from God, which is by grace through faith. The righteousness of God, our problem. The righteousness from God, a gift for our salvation. Well, the doctrine of justification, the foundation of that doctrine, you might say, is found, surprisingly enough, not in Paul, but in Moses, in Genesis 15, we're going to see tonight that the doctrine of justification is not some teaching invented in the New Testament. 
but is actually revealed for the first time as early as our present text. But first of all, what we're going to see in our passage is the Lord God's promise, and I use that term intentionally because that's the term that we will see Abram will use in our passage, the Lord God's promise promise of present refuge and future reward. This is a promise to Abraham, but it's also a promise to the sons and daughters of Abraham. So this is our promise as well. If you'll look with me in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, what things? Well, uh, we read about a lot of battles last week in Genesis 14. Uh, We saw this king, Chedorlaomer, and three of his supporting kings who went to war against everybody. And they kidnapped Lot, and he was the wrong person to kidnap. And and Abram, along with his 318 men, went to war against them. And though these kings were undefeated, Abram won the battle and delivered his, his nephew Lot. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. First vision of the Bible. Again, uh, Genesis is a, a book of first. So he comes in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So this is also the first time in Scripture that we read the word of the Lord came. Again, Genesis is a book of first. Um, this is, if you've read your Old Testament, a very significant phrase. You see it with the prophets numerous times. Uh, you see it with Samuel, and you see it with David, and you see it with Nathan, and you see it with, with Haggai and Jonah, and on and on go, you go. 24 times in the book of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came. Get this, I just finished reading Ezekiel. Almost every chapter begins with, and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. 50 times in the book of Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came. So this is this truth that the word of the Lord comes to his people, the foundation of our faith. The Lord has revealed himself to us. He has unveiled his personal privacy or we would remain as false worshipers. So don't overlook those words. The word of the Lord came. It's for our salvation. And, and God says three things here in just this first verse. The first thing he says is, fear not, Abram, fear not. Now, we can understand, given the enemies that Abram has made recently, as recent as chapter 14, why he might be fearful. He was likely thinking, am I all alone in this? Am I really safe with 318 men? He may have just come to his senses and realized, what have I just done? going to battle against this, this great king, Cheddar Laomer. Um, it must have felt for Abram that he was alone in the world. The only other person he had was his knucklehead nephew. So he must have felt quite isolated. Again, Genesis is a book of first. And so for the first time in the Bible, we read, do not be afraid. I love that. It's the most often repeated command. It's a command. 
It's the most often repeated command in the Bible. Now, I have heard this. I've never counted it. Too busy to count it. Maybe someone in here uh, can count it for us. I've heard there's 365 uh, do not fears in the Bible, one for each day. I don't know if that's true. It sounds good. Uh, But this is the first time we read this, do not be afraid. It's also remarkable how the scripture deals with this command. It deals with this command differently than it deals with other commands. Like, do not commit adultery. Uh, Do not be drunk. Or or do not steal. With those other commands, uh, sins with those other commands, you'll, you'll, you'll often see something like repent and turn. But that's not what you see with this command. When we see do not fear in scripture, it follows it up with some really good stuff like don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't do not fear. I will help you. I love that. Or in this case, Notice the second thing God says to him, I am your shield. This is the first time in the Bible we see that God promises his people to be their shield. You'll see it in Psalm 33. You'll see it in Psalm uh, uh, 115, Proverbs 2, verse 7. Of course, a shield has the idea of protection, God is promising Abram in a world of pagan kings and war and fallenness and brokenness that he is his protection. Now, you don't need protection if you're not vulnerable. I wore a football helmet for 16 years. Uh, I love football helmets. I have my high school and my college helmet in my study. If you ever want to come see them, I, I, I would love to share them with you. I love my helmets. But you have never seen me or will ever see me wear those helmets in this pulpit. Why? I'm no longer vulnerable to head injury. So I no longer wear the helmets. You see, if you don't think you're vulnerable in the world, in this broken world... To have God as your shield is not a big deal. If you don't think you're subject to a lot of heartache and pain and loss, reading this verse, this promise doesn't mean a whole lot to you. You kind of yawn at it. But when you recognize your real condition in this real broken world, Moses has just made your day. God is our shield. The promises made to Abram are the promises made to all of God's people. The third promise we see here in verse uh, 1, he says, Your reward shall be very great. Now, this goes back to chapter 12 and the great promises that he will be a blessing to the nations. He will have a, a, a place He will have a program. He will have a people, uh, wonderful promises. But ultimately, the promise made to Abram and to every believer is that God is ultimately our great reward. I mean, you think about this. Every believer is rewarded differently uh, in this life for their faith. And so Abel was murdered. Enoch was translated to heaven. Daniel closed the mouth of lions. 
Hebrews tells us that others were eaten by lions. So everybody's reward for our faith is different in this world. But every believer has God as their reward. And it will take all eternity and then another eternity to even skim the surface of this eternal reward. God, F.B. Meyer says this, to have God is to have all. Though bereft of everything, to be destitute of God is to be bereft of everything, though having all. Abram has this promise of a great reward. And so that is the first promise we see here. But now we get at the heart of the passage. The Lord God's promise, yes, of present refuge and future reward, but the Lord God's promise of present righteousness and a future heir. That's the promise made to Abram. In verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Um, this is the first time in the scriptures you read the name Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God. It's a very important name. It's the first time right here. It's also the first time that Abram speaks in scripture. Up to now, God has been speaking to Abram. And I'm sure Abram has spoken, but it's not revealed to us what he said. But now for the first time, Abram speaks. He, he speaks to God. And, and what does he speak when he begins to speak to God? He begins to ask a lot of questions. Um, and it reveals a faith in Adonai Yahweh. But it also reveals like our faith a very imperfect faith. Well, look with me in verse 3. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Now, that's the same word. It could be translated seed. Um, it's the same word found in, in Genesis 3.15, in fact. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. It's the same word, serah. You, you might spell it in English, S-E-R-A-H. Uh, you've given me no seed. You, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Uh, neither God's protection, his promise to be a shield to Abram, or his promise of great reward seems to be very important to Abram at this point. And that's how it is when we become self-absorbed. Can a believer be self-absorbed? Yes. And the reason I say Abram is self-absorbed here is because six times in the English and seven times in the original language, he makes references to himself in the space of 22 Hebrew words. And two times he utters the complaint of childlessness. When it's me, 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 that is a symptom that you are self-absorbed and you need to take heed. I hate to share this story, but I'm going to share it. I'm planning to share it. But I drove Nate to Louisville 
a couple of weeks ago, and my battery light came on. And I went, Nate, we may be in trouble here uh, because you don't know anything about cars, and, and I know less than you. <laughs> but the, the following morning when we woke up, the, the battery light had disappeared. I said, everything's okay. The Lord has healed. <laughs> then the end of the week, so we drove back to Louisville. The end of the week, I drive down to Mobile. And I'm talking to my Aunt Pat on the phone. And I said, Pat, I've got to go. She said, why? I said, well, my battery light just came on. And so, so did every other light on the dashboard. And now if the car is starting to give and to take. Uh, and, and, and so I had to, I had to uh, kind of coast into a, uh, an exit ramp just an hour and 15 minutes out of Mobile. And I called Heather and real calmly, I said, sweetheart, my car is broken down. No, that's not how it was. Um, <laughs> um, thankfully, we had AAA and they came and uh, towed the car to Mobile and I missed Seth's ball game. But the fact is, I had ignored the signs. The signs were there, all right? And I ignored them. The signs are here, and the signs are, when it's about me, and it, I'm not talking about myself all the time, me, 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 uh, that's an evidence that I am self-absorbed. There's a problem, and it needs to be addressed. Abram is there, right here. He is struggling with his faith. Now, let's keep in mind, there's a difference between a struggle of a believer's faith and the struggle of an unbeliever's unbelief. Uh, Abram's faith or his struggle is more like the man in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And a lot of his struggle is because he has become self-absorbed. You see, in the Old Testament, when God's people manifest prideful unbelief towards God, he's not gentle with them. Let's just say that. But when God's believing people humbly, Come to him. You see it in the Psalms time and time again. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? When they demonstrate hum humble uh, kind of struggle with their faith, he is very gentle. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Uh, Abram is not saying, well, you've never done anything for me, so how can I believe that these promises are going to come to pass? That's not what he's doing. Remember, God had made an explicit promise to Abram, and Abram is holding on to that promise even if his faith is in process and needs strengthening. Well, notice in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, that is, Eliezer, shall not be your... Uh, this man shall not be your heir... Your very own son shall be your heir. Your very own son. So three times earlier, twice in Genesis 12 and once in Genesis 13, God had promised Abram to have a multitude of descendants. But what God says here is new. A son from his very loins would be his heir. You see it here, right here in 15.4. In verse 5, And he brought him outside 
And he said, look toward heaven and number the stars. Of course, that's an impossible task, especially if you're on a clear evening and you're away from city lights. It's remarkable the number of stars. It's impossible to number them. He says, but you number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, I want to emphasize here, this is initially going to be fulfilled in, in Israel. In fact, you see it fulfilled in Israel while they're in Egyptian bondage. Uh, in Exodus 1.12, the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more babies came. The only equivalent I've seen is a seminary. Uh, the more classes these students take, the more pregnancies you see. I mean, it's remarkable how many babies come from seminary life. Um, but that's what happened. The more the pharaohs oppressed Israel, they continued to reproduce. Eventually, under David's reign, and more in particular, his son's reign, Solomon, it is said, listen to this, 1 Kings 4 verse 20, Judah and Israel were many as the sand by the sea. And so you see God's people in God's place, Canaan, under the rule of the Davidic son. And they're multiplying as the sands of the, the sea. Does that sound like something? Well, that was a type. That was a picture of what would be. But as we saw earlier, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise is found in the greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't have to conjecture on that. Paul makes it clear in Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? So the heir that Abram was promised, yes, was Isaac. But in, in prophecy, there's often a near fulfillment, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment. And so the near fulfillment is going to be Isaac. We know that. But the ultimate fulfillment, Paul says, is, is Christ. And verse 29 tells us in Galatians 3, writing to a Gentile church, by the way, if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So how is this being fulfilled? It's being fulfilled through the gospel and through the Great Commission. As unbelievers hear the gospel from God's people, they repent and they believe in Jesus. They are united to Jesus. And this promise is being fulfilled as we are reproduced by the thousands and the millions. I just saw a I just saw a cover story in World Magazine how so many Muslims are being converted to Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. We love our Muslim friends and we want them to come to saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're seeing it throughout the world. But as we see this, we recognize that that will be thousands of years off. In the meantime, there's an immediate fulfillment. And Abram's response is that of a true son of God. 
And that brings us to one of the most important verses in the Bible. Now, when I say that, let me say this. I, I talked about inspiration this morning. There is, there is not one verse in the Bible more inspired than another. Paul's words are inspired, are as inspired as Jesus' red words. The first nine chapters of Chronicles reads like a Jerusalem phone book, right? They are just as inspired as Romans 3 or John 3.16. When we talk about verbal plenary inspiration, we're saying that every word is fully inspired, equally inspired. But with that said, there are certain texts that are more significant than other texts. Uh, there are certain truths that are more significant than other truths. Jezebel died is a truth. Jesus died, saves the world, right? This is one of those verses. Verse 6. He believed the Lord, and he counted to him, counted it to him as righteousness. Now, again, this is the first time the verb believed is found in the Bible. Genesis is a book of first. Abram believed the Lord. It's also the first time we read the word counted. How glorious is that? Uh, that's, that's the same idea when we talk about at Reformation season of imputation. Um, this righteousness was imputed to Abram as he believed it was credited to him. Uh, it was counted to him. It's also the first time we see the word righteousness right here. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I do not believe this is when Abram was saved. Why do I say that? Well, for one, and I think perhaps my greatest argument here is Hebrews eleven eight. That's referring to Genesis 12. That's already occurred three chapters earlier. In Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So what gives here? Well, I think Martin Luther is the most helpful of the, of the different uh, responses that I have read. Martin Luther says here about this passage, if you should ask whether Abram or Abraham was righteous before this time, my answer is he was righteous because he believed God. But here the Holy Spirit wanted to attest this expressly since the promise deals with a spiritual seed. So in this passage, he's dealing with a specific son who will come from his loins, right? He did so in order that we might conclude on the basis of a correct inference that those who accept this seed are those who believe in Christ are righteous. Another uh, theologian named Wilhelm Brekel, he's written a wonderful uh, series of, of books on theology. He wrote, since justification is the fruit of faith, when first exercised, justification is also the fruit when faith is exercised by renewal. And so I, I don't believe that Abram was saved here. I believe he was already saved. But because in this particular passage, he is believing God that he's going to provide a son from his loins, a seed, an offspring from his loins, this becomes 
a passage that is picked up by several or at least two New Testament writers. Who are they? Paul and James. Now, I'm not going to address James here until Genesis 22 because he's dealing with this verse in a different way than Paul does. But the way Moses intends this in this particular passage, Paul picks this up clearly in two different passages. And so I want to close out our night by looking at those two passages because of the nature of the importance of this verse. The first one is in Galatians 3. We read from Galatians 3, uh, verses 16 and following. But earlier in Galatians 3, here's what Paul says, and he's picking up this verse from Genesis 15. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So Paul says here that the sons of Abraham now are every tribe and tongue, those who are of the faith of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul is saying that the gospel was preached to Abraham. Of course, we don't, uh, we recognize that the gospel was not as fully developed when it was preached to Abraham as what we have, but it was the same gospel. It's kind of like blowing in a balloon, and the, and the more air you blow into the balloon, the, the more shape that it takes. Well, that's how progressive revelation works. And so you start seeing that, that air being blown into the balloon early in Genesis. And so Abraham was believing the gospel, and he was justified by that. And then he says, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That's why I said these promises made to Abram are promises made to us because we have the same faith as Abraham. And so we have the Lord as our shield. We have the Lord as our great reward. The other passage where Paul picks this up, this verse, is in Romans chapter 4. In fact, the entire chapter of Romans 4 is an explanation of Genesis 15 verse 6. It's remarkable. That's how important that verse is. That's why I'm spending time hovering on this. An entire chapter of Romans, which may be the most important book of the Bible, an entire chapter is, is basically expounding on Genesis 15, verse 6. And so in Romans 4, verse 1, Paul asked this question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So Paul is, is really answering a question that may have, may have been raised. Paul, are you, are you a new cult? Is Christianity a cult? Um, and so Paul here goes to Abraham uh, to make his point that there is continuity with what he is saying and what Abraham believed. Now, if it can be shown that Abraham is going to heaven not because of anything he did, and he was the best of men, but because of his trust in a holy God's promise of a son who would come to be the blessing of the world, then the case is closed. But if we read in the next verse that it's according to Abraham's resume that he saved... We're all about to have a bad day. 
Because who wants Abraham as our standard? With all of his weaknesses of faith, there's not a one of us who wants to stand up next to Abraham in the day of judgment. Verse 2 of Romans, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If Abraham, in other words, earns the commendation of God by his works, uh, then he has all reason to boast. But verse 2 says, but not before God. That's good news. For what does the scripture say? And here it is. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's how important that verse is. Perhaps Galatians 3 and Romans 3 and 4 are three of the most important chapters the Apostle Paul wrote. And in those three chapters, Paul is expounding on this passage, on this verse. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In Romans, Abraham is our example of faith. He's the exemplary man. And yet, Abraham was not deemed righteous because he was good, but because righteousness was credited to him. I've shared this story before, but I think it bears repeating. I was driving back from Nashville to Louisville one night with, a, with a, one of my deans, and I got a call that a young lady had been uh, put in the hospital because she had harmed herself. She tried to harm herself. And, and so I, I went over there, and she was in the psychiatric ward. And, and so I got there, and I told the nurse that she wasn't expecting me, but I would like to see her. And so she went back, got permission. I walked into her office or, or her room, and she had her, you know, her arm bandaged. And uh, the first thing she said to me was, uh, Pastor, God will never forgive me. And I said, why? She said, because I've harmed my temple. That told me she had a religious background because I didn't know her. And I said, so let me ask you a question. Do you believe that you did, what you did was wrong? She said, yes. I said, so let me ask you another question. Do you believe that what you did was, was sinful? Yes. Uh, do you believe that you're a sinner? Yes, I believe that. I said, I'm going to ask you one more question. Do you believe you're ungodly? I think the nurse was about to throw me out of the room at that point. And she said, yes. I said, congratulations. You're qualified to be justified. Because in Romans 4, a chapter that centers on Genesis 15, verse 6, Paul writes, God justifies the ungodly. Abraham is the example. Abraham was justified by grace alone through faith alone in the promised son who would come that we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. What he believed on that occasion saves and changes the world. He knew that this seed would come and be the blessing to all the families of the earth. In fact, we know this to be the person of Christ, and it is through Christ. And here's what I want to close with. It is in Christ that God is our shield. He is our shield. Now, why do I say that? Because our greatest problem in the world is not the struggles of a broken world. 
our greatest problem is the wrath of God. In fact, we need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from the devil. But ultimately, we need to be saved from God's wrath. Now, how does that happen? Well, let me give you this one example and we'll close. When I was about in eighth grade, I was in the Boy Scouts. I made it to Tenderfoot. I told Bill Hutto that and he wasn't impressed. <laughs> I showed him my Tenderfoot badge and he just yawned. But we, we camped at national security, uh, at, a, at a place in national security and, and one of our troop leaders uh, set a fire and it, we burned down 35 acres. The Elba Boy Scouts. We made the Elba Clipper on that one. And here's what we did though. We thought we were in danger. And, and so we ran to where the grass had already been burned. Does that make sense? Why would you run to where the grass has already been burned? It's not going to burn again. So here's how Jesus is our shield. On the cross, the wrath of God was poured out and Jesus took the wrath. How do you avoid the wrath? You run to where the fire has already burned. You run to the one who has already taken the judgment and received the judgment and was raised that we might be justified. It is in Christ that God is our shield. It is in Christ he is our very great reward. But I also recognize some here tonight don't know that yet experientially. You know it intellectually because you've heard it. But I want you to know it experientially. And so as Adam comes forward and the musicians, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that, that promise. If you come to God through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be your shield from his wrath. He will be your shield from all the brokenness of this world. He will be your great reward. The greatest reward being the forgiveness of sins. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.